This is an ABC podcast. This is Baby Talk Podcast with Penny Johnston. How does your earliest experience shape your lifelong health? Well, that's a question many researchers would like to answer. Apparently, if you can nail that first 1,000 days, then there's every chance that you'll live a full and healthy life. But it's not exactly an easy research topic. Around the world, and even here in Australia, there are a number of research projects following babies from before they were born and well into their adult lives. We heard recently on Baby Talk how a study of children, who are now almost adults in Western Australia, has been used to compare the health of children of a similar age born due to assisted reproduction. And the very positive conclusion that IVF children are doing pretty much the same as their normally conceived peers. It is staggering to see that there is absolutely no difference. And also, it's, it, was, it was such a delight doing these assessments on these IVF children. Sort of, we, we looked at them from 13 through to 20 years of age. And they're just a credit to their parents. It was just so marvellous to sort of see these children. Over in Canada, Professor Megan Azad from the University of Manitoba is studying the developmental origins of chronic diseases and how a baby's first experiences influence future health. She's doing that at the Children's Hospital Research Institute of Manitoba. A baby that's one or two weeks old needs a different composition of milk compared to a baby that's one month or two months or 12 months old. And breast milk naturally changes to meet those needs, whereas formula is a one-size-fits-all formulation. And not only does breast milk change over time as the baby grows, but it changes in the course of one day. So milk that's produced in the morning is different from milk that's produced at night. There's a circadian rhythm to milk composition. It also responds to the baby's health. So if the baby is sick or has an infection, the mother will sense this and adjust her own production of antibodies for that baby. So it's really fascinating. And and milk is very different from one woman to the next, too. Her research is an advertisement for trying to keep breastfeeding going for as long as possible. Professor Megan Azad came to Australia last year, just before the world locked down with COVID. And this interview we recorded at the Turning the Tide Breastfeeding Conference in Warrnambool. It's a gathering that brings the world of breastfeeding experts to a small region and is a huge resource for people who are interested in the science of breastfeeding. There's always some amazing research being reported at this conference that's held every two years. When I spoke to Professor Megan Azad, she talked about her research into chronic diseases. Megan, you were focusing particularly on the developmental origins of asthma. Yes, that's true. So we look at asthma and allergies as well as obesity and other conditions. How strong is the link between breastfeeding and future health? So it's a strong link. I think, I mean, people have been studying this for decades, but there are problems with past research. And one of these is that we have to rely on what we call observational studies. So it's really not ethical to randomize people or do experiments um, assigning mothers to breastfeed or not. So some of the past studies have been under criticism for um, just not having the strongest methodology. Uh, But I'm part of a large Canadian study called the Child Study, where we've enrolled 3,600 families beginning when the mothers were pregnant, and we've been following them and their babies as they grow up. 
to understand the development of asthma and allergies and how this begins early in life. Um, we know that these are two of the earliest chronic diseases to occur in life. So we think that something very early on is contributing. Um, and so we're looking at environmental factors, very broadly speaking, everything from what's in the home environment to the air quality outside to stress. And then nutrition is a big part of that. And for infants, breastfeeding is a big part of nutrition. So um, we're seeing in our study that babies who are breastfed have a lower incidence of wheezing early in life and then asthma later in childhood. How strongly can you prove this particular link? Because it's not going to be quite as accurate as, say, an evil experiment where half of identical twins were breastfed and the other half weren't sort of thing. Mm Yeah, so this is certainly a challenge with breastfeeding research, but we see, and so we do rely on parent report, but our study is prospective, meaning we followed families forward in time. Um, And that's much stronger evidence than if you're relying retrospectively, you know, finding children with asthma and asking their parents, did you breastfeed this child when they were a baby? That can be hard to remember that long ago accurately. Um, But we've followed forward since before the babies were born and collected quite accurate information. Um, We've also controlled for things, which can be an issue. So you know, if you don't account for the mother's own health, um, her level of education, her diet, other aspects of lifestyle, then it's hard to be sure that it's the breastfeeding that's critically important as opposed to these other factors that can come along with breastfeeding. So we've controlled with those and, and we do see an association. And what's more is we see what we would call a dose response. So we look at the duration of breastfeeding, how long a mom breastfed for, and also how exclusively. So whether or not she was providing only breast milk or a combination of breast milk and formula. Um, And so we see that any breastfeeding seems to be beneficial, um, but the longer and the more exclusive, the more we see a benefit. Wow. So you can actually sort of prove that it's it's not just starting, it's the length of the breastfeeding journey that's going to help a baby. Yeah, so we certainly see that any amount helps. So I like to always make sure we stress that for moms because I know for every mom, it might not be possible to continue for a year or to only give breast milk. So even partial breastfeeding is helpful. Even a few months is helpful. Um, But we do see that the longer and the more exclusive, the stronger the benefits. Are you doing any research in Canada about the actual structure of breast milk and what might be helping things like allergies and asthma? Yes. So by training, I have a kind of dual combination of, I have a PhD in biochemistry and genetics. So I'm really interested at the molecular level of the structure of breast milk, but I also have training in epidemiology, so the population health. So combining those two things, we look on the population health side at the rates of breastfeeding and the rates of asthma and allergies, but then at the molecular level, I'm really interested in knowing if breast milk is important, what is it in the breast milk? So in this child study that I work with, we have collected um, breast milk samples from the mothers and we've been analyzing the different components. So this includes things like fatty acids. We're studying something really interesting called human milk oligosaccharides. These are sugars that are naturally found in breast milk and there's many different types of them in many cases they're unique to human milk so they're not found in the milk from other species and um, we're finding that they are really important we're also studying microbes in milk so healthy women all have microbes or bacteria in their breast milk so we're studying the role of those microbes in the babies we're looking also at hormones milk also contains antibodies and immune factors so there are kind of an endless number of fascinating things in breast milk uh, that we're just really beginning to understand wow it sounds it sounds like there's an ingredient list in breast milk that you just could not put in an infant formula Exactly. So infant formulas are, you know, we should absolutely make them as nutritious as possible for babies who aren't able to be breastfed. And we're 
they're always trying to be closer and closer to breast milk. But really, I think it's important to understand that it's impossible to replicate breast milk. There are firstly so many different components and many of them are personalized to that mother and that baby and they change over time. So breast milk changes not only as the baby grows. So a baby that's one or two weeks old needs a different composition of milk compared to a baby that's one month or two months or 12 months old. And breast milk naturally changes to meet those needs. Whereas formula is a one size fits all formulation. And not only does breast milk change over time as the baby grows, but it changes in the course of one day. So milk that's produced in the morning is different from milk that's produced at night. There's a circadian rhythm to milk composition. It also responds to the baby's health. So if the baby is sick or has an infection, the mother will sense this and adjust her own production of antibodies for that baby. So it's really fascinating. And and milk is very different from one woman to the next too. We're learning about that in the child study where we've studied thousands of milk samples and we see that different women produce very different combinations of oligosaccharides and fatty acids and different components. So really, there's no way to replicate that in a one-size-fits-all formula. That's amazing. I had actually heard that the way breast milk responds to a baby's health is that when the baby latches on, there's a little bit of baby saliva goes back into the breast and somehow the breast responds to that. Yeah, the baby backwash. Yeah. Yes. So this is something that we're still learning about. But yes, this is the way that it's thought that the baby is able to communicate back to the mother. So it's a two-way exchange. The mom's delivering milk to the baby, but the baby is delivering back a little bit of saliva, which contains different molecules, which signal um, the baby's needs and the baby's health. Um, And actually, this is one of the things we're finding is when we separate out breastfeeding from breast milk feeding, because increasingly a lot of moms are pumping their milk and feeding it from a bottle. And there are many uh, absolutely valid reasons to do that for some moms if they need to go back to work or they have problems with latching. This might be the only way they can deliver breast milk to their baby. So I'm by no means against pumping. But we're finding in our research that feeding pumped and bottled breast milk isn't equivalent to nursing at the breast. So we see, for example, that with nursing at the breast, babies have a lower risk of asthma. If they're getting their milk pumped and bottled, they have this sort of intermediate risk. So it still is lower than formula fed babies, but not as low as nursing at the breast. And so we're trying to understand why that is. If it's because of this, you'd be missing the baby backwash, right? Or if it's other things about storing milk, the process of pumping, possibly contamination from pumps if they're not cleaned properly, uh, many possible mechanisms that I think are important to understand given the large proportion of moms that are pumping some of their milk. That's amazing. How how wonderful to be able to research that. What a topic. <laughs> oh, I think so. It's totally fascinating. One of the things that we've become increasingly interested in, you know, adult health is the mm-hmm. microcosm that lives inside our gut and how important it is for health and mental health even. And I know that a lot of women who delivered their baby through a C-section are really worried that that maybe their baby missed out on some of that microbiome. But I understand that breastfeeding really has been proven to fill that gap. Yeah, so the microbiome is actually what got me interested in breastfeeding as a research topic. So about 10 years ago is when I first joined the child study research team. The study was just getting going at that point. So we still had about five years to wait before the children would be old enough to diagnose asthma. And so in the meantime, we'd collected diapers from all these babies. And this was just around the time that the microbiome was starting to be Become this important research topic. And so we realized we had the opportunity to study the microbiomes of these babies. And so that's what I first worked on, um, was analyzing these microbes that are living 
in and on our bodies, including in babies. And one of our initial discoveries was that babies who'd been born by C-section had a different microbiome. So they were missing some of the bacteria that were normally found in the babies born vaginally. So this was a really interesting difference. I have to say, we're still learning about what that means for a baby's health, the fact that they're missing these microbes. But the other thing we saw was that in addition to, and even more so than the way you're born, um, the way you are fed as a baby has a really big impact on your microbiome. So we saw very big differences between babies who were breastfed versus formula fed. Um, And what's more, when we combine that information, so from the C-section babies, we saw that the microbes they were missing were sort of quicker to come back if they were breastfed after being born by cesarean section. So I think this is a nice positive message for moms because we know that cesarean section is not always avoidable. Sometimes it's very necessary. And in that case, what can we do to advise moms about potentially repairing this microbiome of their baby? I think breastfeeding is one we can absolutely recommend. There's all sorts of kind of still experimental research going on in terms of vaginal seeding or probiotics or fecal transplants. Um, We still need a lot more evidence on those practices, but breastfeeding is one that's been around forever and we know can help support a healthy microbiome. Which we're starting to realize is more and more important, but I have to point out that you may have not had many job takers when you put out that your research lab was examining (laughs) old pooey nappies. Well, it's pretty interesting stuff. I mean, but yeah, I'll, uh, I, I wasn't the one doing the dirty work. So I do appreciate all the other members of the team that helped us out with that. Sounds like there's amazing research. Is it being reported in Canada? Or is, it, is this the sort of thing that inspires women to want to increase their breastfeeding or to take up breastfeeding at a greater rate? Yeah, you know, I hope so. It is being certainly reported in Canada. We actually just had this week out of the child study, a report on one of the things we focused on too is the internal home environment where babies spend most of their time. And we're looking at the use of cleaning chemicals in these families' homes and found some links with allergy and asthma development as well as the microbiome. And that was sort of making the news this week in Canada. So I'm happy to say it is being reported. And some of our breastfeeding findings have been reported as well. I'm often asked to speak to mother's groups or hospitals and those types of places. And so I hope that this is, although we know, you know, for many reasons, breastfeeding is healthy, not only for babies, but for moms too. But this microbiome angle is really kind of a new spin on why it's important to breastfeed and providing some of that mechanistic evidence. I think that's important for not only for moms, but for healthcare providers, for policymakers too. The stronger the evidence and the more we understand how it works, how breastfeeding is supporting health, I think the more these um, policymakers are likely to generate policies that will support moms um, in being able to breastfeed. I think that's an important point too, is that it's not all on the individual moms, as much as it's important to provide education and awareness to moms about the importance of breastfeeding. The truth is, I think most moms know that and they want to breastfeed and often they're failed by the society around them in terms of providing the support or the policies that enable them to do that. In the past on this program, when we've spoken about allergies, the the Mm -hmm. researchers have spoken to us about this tsunami of allergies that is occurring in the Western world. Are you finding evidence that breastfeeding might hold a key to preventing those? Yeah, you know, I think it's a really complex question for allergies specifically, especially food allergies, because we have seen this tsunami, I like that term, of allergies in the Western world in the last couple of decades. And so we know because it's arisen so quickly that it's got to be environmental. 
genetics certainly play a role, but genetics have not changed in a couple of generations. Um, and so that's really the focus of this child study is to look very carefully at the environment, at all aspects of the environment and try to understand what has changed. And the breastfeeding component, I think specifically for food allergies is complex because there's this recommendation to exclusively breastfeed to six months, meaning don't give any formula, but not even water, not any food. And at the same time, some evidence is emerging that maybe introducing allergenic foods like peanut and egg earlier is helpful to preventing allergies. For for a number of years, it was thought that we needed to avoid foods, allergenic foods for babies until they were old enough to sort of tolerate them. Um, and then some, some studies recently out of the UK in the last couple of years have really shown that that was the wrong approach. We need to be introducing these foods earlier. The definition of early is where it gets complicated, um, for sure before one year of age, but exactly how early is, I think, still up to f- for debate. But Bringing that back to breastfeeding, what's complicated is if you exclusively breastfeed to six months, then by definition, you have not introduced these allergenic foods. And that might be important. So sometimes we see this almost backwards relationship where longer exclusive breastfeeding might be associated with more allergies. But I think that's got more to do with avoiding the allergenic foods than breastfeeding for longer. What I actually think, and this needs to be proven, we're trying to um, get a study started to address it. I think probably the optimal scenario is for moms to breastfeed and introduce the foods relatively early, but still be breastfeeding at that time because there are so many fascinating things in breast milk. Many of them influence the baby's immune system, which is the system that's responsible for malfunctioning and causing allergies. So I think it's important to have that continued exposure to these important things in breast milk at the time that you're introducing these foods. And then on top of that, I think it's probably important that the mom is eating those foods because parts of proteins from eggs and peanuts that a mom is eating wind up in her breast milk. And we think that might actually help prevent allergies. So I think it's probably this like triple exposure to the mom breastfeeding, the mom eating the foods, the baby eating the foods at an appropriate time. I think all of these things interact to prevent allergies, but we really don't have firm evidence to know for sure. There's a great study actually happening here in Australia. It has a great name. It's called the Pregnut Study. So it's happening out of Perth and a few other centers in, in Australia. And they're recruiting moms and seeing by advising them to eat more allergenic foods, whether they can prevent allergies in the babies. Can you tell us how the hygiene hypothesis is a potential cause for immune diseases and allergies? Certainly this idea that our westernized society, which often involves excessive hygiene practices, may be contributing to this increase in allergies. So the idea that we're overly clean, we're sanitizing every surface, we're using too many antibiotics, these are all things that decrease our exposure to microbes, especially in early life. And we kind of have this idea that, oh, we have to be clean. We don't want to be exposed to germs. But the recent evidence suggests that actually being exposed to bacteria is an important and healthy part of immune development. And if we avoid that exposure, the immune system probably doesn't develop properly and it ends up malfunctioning. And that can be a inappropriate response to harmless things like eggs and peanuts, um, which results in an allergy. So we call that the hygiene hypothesis. And that's 
one of the things we're generating evidence for in the child study. That's kind of useful for a a slightly lackadaisical housekeeper like myself. Yes, (laughs) exactly. Makes me feel better. Yeah, there's a great study, I think it was out of Scandinavia, where they, similar to child, had kind of collected all sorts of um, information from families about their babies. And they asked one question about pacifiers or soothers. I'm not sure what you call them here. Um, Dummies. Dummies. Um, So they said, does your baby use a dummy? And if yes, what do you do if the dummy drops on the floor? So do you sterilize it, boil it? Do you just clean it off with soap and water? Or do you just like lick it off and put it back in their mouth? (laughs) And it was the families that said, ah, just lick it off, put it back in their mouth. Those were the babies that had the lowest rates of allergies. The parents who were sterilizing the dummy every time, those were the babies that had the highest risk of allergies. So I think there's something to be said about these kind of everyday microbes. And possibly also that transfer of saliva from mom to baby. But those are the types of things that are probably helping an immune system grow up healthy. And we've overdone it in terms of getting rid of every germ and bacteria in our life. And this probably isn't having the best effect on immune development. Uh, There's also evidence around um, pets. So having your kids in contact with pets and animals is another way to get exposure to healthy microbes. Certainly, especially when there's viruses going around, we want to be careful about washing hands. And if there are people who are obviously ill, you don't want them around a new baby. But we're more talking about just the everyday microbes in our environment that are probably harmless and actually helpful in many ways. But certainly you do have to be careful about infections. It is quite visionary for a government to set up a study like this. Yeah, it's really important. I think more and more we're realizing that these diseases of old age, cardiovascular disease, actually start much earlier than we ever thought. And to understand that, you really need studies like this that start early, early at birth, even before. And then it takes time and patience and certainly money to do the research, to follow them along, collect all the samples and the information. So we certainly are hoping to keep getting funded to keep the study going. And I'm really impressed by some of the research, like you say, happening here in Australia. I just came from um, visiting some researchers in Perth who are doing a similar study. They're still recruiting right now. So lots of important evidence to be gained from this research, but it takes time and investment for sure. I always like to acknowledge and thank all the many families that participate in the study. So there's over 3,500 of them across Canada, and they've made a massive contribution to science and been very generous with their time, answering our many questions, giving us their bodily fluids. Um, and we really couldn't do any of the research without them. Participation for this study, it's longitudinal. So it's been since pregnancy all the way through. We're actually now still following the children. They're eight years old. It's my dream that we'll still be following them when they have their own children and have multi-generation study. But it is very altruistic, especially these are families with healthy kids. They they don't have diseases. Sometimes that's a motivator for people to participate in research. But these are normal, healthy kids. And their families have really been generous in contributing to science. There's over 40 researchers and hundreds of students and staff involved in the study. So it's a really large effort. And I like to always make that known. Professor Megan Azad, Assistant Professor at the University of Manitoba and Research Scientist at the Children's Hospital Research Institute of Manitoba in the Department of Pediatrics. That's incredible research. Although it's not great news, I thought it was particularly interesting that her research is starting to show that pumping breast milk is not as advantageous as breastfeeding in person. 
one of the things we're finding is when we separate out breastfeeding from breast milk feeding, because increasingly a lot of mums are pumping their milk and feeding it from a bottle. And there are many uh, absolutely valid reasons to do that for some moms if they need to go back to work or they have problems with latching. This might be the only way they can deliver breast milk to their baby. So I'm by no means against pumping. But we're finding in our research that feeding pumped and bottled breast milk isn't equivalent to nursing at the breast. So we see, for example, that with nursing at the breast, babies have a lower risk of asthma. If they're getting their milk pumped and bottled, they have this sort of intermediate risk. So it still is lower than formula-fed babies, but not as low as nursing at the breast. And so we're trying to understand why that is. If it's because of this, you'd be missing the baby backwash, right? Or if it's other things about storing milk, the process of pumping, possibly contamination from pumps if they're not cleaned properly, uh, many possible mechanisms that I think are important to understand given the large proportion of moms that are pumping some of their milk. Just more reasons, I suspect, to help women with breastfeeding every way we can. You can listen to this interview again, or if you think you know somebody who might be interested, you can share it with them because Baby Talk is a podcast that's published weekly. You can subscribe so you don't miss an episode on iTunes and on the ABC Listen app. And on both of those apps on your phone, you'll find a little button that you can share the podcast. You can email it or text it to somebody that you think might need to hear this topic. You can also listen again just by searching Baby Talk on your computer and you'll find the Baby Talk website where you'll find a whole heap of our other podcasts like last week's when we spoke to the Miracle Babies Foundation and heard about some of the heroic parents who are supporting the tiniest of newborn babies living out their very first few weeks in neonatal intensive care units. An hour after my meeting finished or maybe about two hours I'd had the babies and they were out in the world and my husband was very shocked. He was saying one minute I was asleep and the next moment I have two sons. Just one of the podcasts available on Baby Talk. I'm Penny Johnston and I will see you next time on Baby Talk. ABC Baby Talk is a weekly podcast on ABC Radio, wherever you get your podcasts and on the ABC Listen app. Like us on Facebook to find out as soon as a new episode is ready. Just search for ABC Baby Talk. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.